0: Back to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou.
1: And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 15, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Let's get this show back on the road. Happy New Year, you and everyone.
0: I honestly cannot believe that it is 2023 already. <laughs> Where has 2022 gone?
1: I am making no promises, no assumptions about this year. I am done with that game. Only thing I can say is this show's continuing and we're going to have fun.
0: Let's start our year without denial.
1: <laughs> People like to ask how they can support the show. And I mean... There's a lot of ways, but I think the most important one, the most effective one is just telling people about us. It really makes a difference.
0: Another super effective way to support us is on Patreon or Coffee. We're obviously incredibly thankful for every single one of you who supports us financially. Like, it, it really makes a difference for us.
1: You can also leave a rating on Spotify. Spotify does ratings now, so you can leave us a five-star rating. And that just helps get the word out about the show to other people as well, and is just so huge.
0: Now here's the thing. This one is still free, but it does take a little bit longer than just leaving a star rating, and it would be to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is a way to make carrying wayward like stand out, kind of the same idea as the ratings, but it lets other people who might be interested in listening to us, it lets them know what to expect from a typical podcast episode. So if you have a couple of minutes to spare and you want to support us in a way that's not financial, go on Apple Podcasts and tell other folks why you listen to us every week or why you've been binging the show.
1: And we appreciate all of it so much.
0: Thank you. Okay,
1: now we need to talk about this episode.
0: Yes! Oh, God!
1: Before the recap, I need to say something because I think for once I have a piece of information that very few people are going to have. Oh? Do you know where this title is from?
0: Yes, I do. It's part of my thoughts, actually. Yes, I do.
1: (laughs) Okay, so I won't spoil it then.
0: For now though, are we ready for the recap?
1: We sure are. Count me down.
0: Three, two, one,
1: go. Uh, we get a really cool cold open what looks like someone coming out of their grave to attack somebody. And I'm sure that is the case. The brothers show up and they're all like, oh, it possibly like zombies or something. And they interview a guy and they hear, like, oh, that guy's kind of a liar, and this is apparently Bobby's hometown or something. And we meet Jody, because she shows up at the bar as they're interviewing the guy about this potential murder that happened. And I was very shocked. I didn't expect me to meet Jody yet. I want to talk about her more later. We'll do that. But then it turns out, yeah, people are rising from the grave and being totally normal and fine, including Jody's son and Bobby's wife, who is just like, hey, I'm here. I don't sleep anymore. Let me make infinity pies. Of course, this goes without saying it goes wrong. They do go full zombie mode. Bobby's wife is left with a message from death for Bobby. Unfortunately, they they have to go on a killing spree, to get rid of all the zombies, and we kind of get a new ally in Jody, I guess, going forward, and a really sad ending for Bobby. Time. Yeah, this episode is a lot. We'll talk about it later, but like, oh, Bobby.
0: If we move into the long game, we meet Jody. We do, and she is going to be a recurring character all the way up to season fifteen.
1: You're telling me a female character. <laughs> is going to live more than a season or two.
0: Yeah, I know. Isn't that shocking?
1: Legitimately. Like, honestly, if you would have sat me down now and said, okay, so we have, first of all, surprise Jody. I had no idea we were getting her already. Like she's one of those names I've heard. Could not have put a face to the name. Could not tell you anything about her other than I think I knew she was a sheriff or police officer really. But had you said like, how long do you think she'll last? I would have been like, Oh, maybe till the end of the season, maybe next season. Like I, Two seasons is the max I give any new character they introduce besides Cass.
0: It's interesting because in her next episode, her hair is really quite different. And at first I didn't, I didn't realize that it was her. And I was like, oh, wait, I've heard this name before. So, but it took me like a moment to really realize that she was coming back.
1: Yeah. Assuming it's not a spoiler, do we get her back this season or is it like a season down? It was like next season she comes back kind of thing.
0: I know for sure we get her back. We get her in season six and seven. Speaking of Jodi, I just want to mention that her birthday is in 1976, and that makes her only three years older than Dean and seven years older than Sam. And we're going to come back to this discussion in season six, but I just wanted to make that point from the get-go. Now, you might not know this, Drew, and the listeners who didn't follow the series week to week won't know either, but like when Dean says, like, oh, awesome, another horseman must be Thursday, it's actually because the show was airing on Thursdays.
1: I I love breaking the fourth wall, but when you can do it without actually breaking the fourth wall like that, it's kind of cute.
0: We find out that Bobby is the Sioux Falls uh, town drunk. We also find out that Jody hates him and that he's not perceived by his community the way that like we perceive him on the
1: show. It's so frequent that we see a character from like a very specific point of view. The show writes him in a certain way. You don't always have the opportunity to see them from someone else's point of view. Like, I think the closest we got was uh, the Facers' their point of view of Sam and Dean.
0: That was so good.
1: I love that. I feel like they are incredibly biased because of their existing relationship. But it does kind of give you a chance to see how other people within the universe react to these people. Given what we know about Bobby, given his past and the, kind of the idea of hunters who are kind of semi retired or retired, being in the town drunk isn't like the weirdest thing to hear.
0: The way that we see him, he's part of like this hero squad that like saves the world all the time. And so we can more easily forgive his vices, let's put it that way. Whereas like for the town in which he lives, like they're all they see is the drunk. They don't know about his work like how essential he's been at like saving the world and so it's much harder for them to not think of him as the tap drunk we get to meet karen bobby's wife and one thing that i like about that is that we get to see like their bond and their love and respect for one another not just not just the super traumatic thing that basically leads to her death When Dean asks Karen why she doesn't just tell Bobby that she remembers her death, she replies, Oh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you've never been in love. He's my husband. My job is to bring him peace, not pain. There's a lot to unpack here because I fundamentally disagree with the fact that it's a wife's job to bring her husband peace and vice versa, honestly. And just in general, like it's not your job to bring your partner peace. I need us to keep this in mind for season six. And this also connects back to like, we're human when we want something really bad. We lie from like free to be you and me.
1: Yeah. Like I see the problematic, this was written about a fifties housewife angle this is taking, but I also just sort of see it. Like if you drop that pretense and just go like, Like, she's aware of what's going on. Like, I think there's a part of her that's like, I know what's happening. And, like, this may be temporary. So why sour the good part?
0: That's definitely a part of it. And the whole, like, you know, when we want something, we lie. When we love somebody, we lie to them just to make it a bit easier. Like, we've definitely seen this in Supernatural before. So this is in no way surprising. And we're going to see it again and again and again. So I mentioned free to be you and me. So speaking of Destiel heavy episodes, Dean says that he's making this stuff up as he goes, which is what Cass told Chuck at the end of season four. I'm just wondering, I guess, why he's thinking about Cass quotes after someone asks him if he's ever been in love.
1: I cannot draw a line here.
0: Now, we don't get to meet death this episode, but we sure get to see his handiwork and we find out that he targeted Sioux Falls specifically to hurt Bobby, either to kill him or to try to kill his spirit.
1: Love the horseman. I cannot wait to meet death. I can't wait to see how he is personified and how they do everything with with them. I think I said him there at one point and I realized I don't know his gender. Their gender. It's gender.
0: Supernatural being supernatural. It's going to be a man. A white man. A white man.
1: (laughs) After the first two horsemen, I'm assuming all four are men uh, and white. This already is just such good like character building for Death that he isn't just they aren't just a "Ooh, I'm gonna kill you." They're like, "Hmm, how can I screw with everyone?"
0: We'll get to meet Death, and I'm just very excited for that moment where you get to meet them.
1: Speaking of meeting people, shall we head to story time?
0: Let's go on ahead. Today, our theme is denial. So denial comes from the Latin denegare, which means a refusal to accept or acknowledge. Here's the thing about the word denial that I find really curious. So we hear the expression like denying allegations quite often. So we know that it means like to refute what somebody else is saying. At the same time, like our modern idea of like being in denial only appeared in the early 1900s and that, and it came from the English translation of Freud's work. And what really fascinates me here is that the verb, like the action to deny has to do with like external things. Whereas the state of being in denial is entirely internal. And like, of course, like you can actively deny yourself things, but again, I feel like there's an external component there being like the things. Something that I'd like for us to keep an eye out for this episode is like the internal and external components of denial for our characters.
1: Also such a recent word.
0: The word has always always ex- existed, but the way, the way that we use it today to talk about like being in denial is a fairly recent uh, meaning.
1: So interesting.
0: I know, and obviously from German because Freud.
1: Ah, uh, yes, of course.
0: But yeah, that that was something that didn't exist before in uh in English, and that was uh, translated specifically to explain his work. And although I know that he's like incredibly out of fashion today, you know, the, a lot of this, a lot of the stuff that exists in pop culture refers to some of his theories when it comes to psychology. Again, pop psychology, and so I think that like just being aware of that, like. It, I, he shaped our language for crying out loud. Right. So like, there you go.
1: (laughs) That's always where my mind goes when I think of denial for some reason, like that little, like five steps, which I don't think I can name all five in order if I tried right now without like really taking a minute. But like, I always think of denial as like, okay. Like it's like really lying to yourself and like, you know, trying to like pretend whatever is, isn't.
0: It's the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. Um, One thing that I will mention is that those Steps are actually for accepting one's own death, but they're not about grieving loss of somebody else.
1: Yes. I, I Yes, you are correct.
0: Do you want to get us started with uh, the brothers?
1: I feel like it's worth saying we're going to kind of break this episode down a bit differently than we have in the past, because this episode's main character feels to be like Bobby more than anybody else. But I feel like we need to talk about Jody as well. And I think it's fair to talk about Sam and Dean because they've both had to deal with denial for sure. But this week it's again, it's more the reverse. It's them dealing with someone else's denial more so, you know, so Sam clearly has dealt with denial himself. And we're seeing that this season more and more uh, looking back on his reliance on demon blood for power and kind of the denial of like, I'm doing these terrible things that I know are wrong, but it's for the greater good hero complex And then we've also seen Dean deal with it the season before when he literally had a ticking clock hanging over his bloody head, counting down to his literal death. And he was just like, I'm fine. Let's have a burger. Here's a quick, easy job. Let's be friends. Like not like just denial of the fact that like literally there's a date on the calendar that is your end. You have an expiry date and not the kind you can just ignore and go a few extra days.
0: This is not yogurt, essentially.
1: They've both been faced with things that everyone else like clearly understood there was an issue, but had to watch them deny it and pretend like it wasn't happening. Is it just me to feel like it's really hypocritical of the two of them to be so like, Bobby, it's clearly a zombie. You gotta kill her. There's no other way. Like, let's not even like discuss this, have a conversation, do any research, see what's happening. Like just point blank before they even know it's related to death. They're just like, Oh, better kill all these potential innocent people because that's how we do this. And like literally set off in a secret kill mission. Like, I don't know. Like this, this is, I think like, and like the worst part is like, as much as it bugs me, they were right. (laughs) But like, this is jumping to conclusions. This is not giving people room to like, you know, emotionally like understand what's happening. Like, It'd be one thing if they were actively killing people, which is what we eventually get to, and that is a problem. But, like, up to that point, research, study, Sam be Sam, stop being Dean.
0: I, I really like that here you're sort of calling us to, to show empathy towards someone who's in denial, and I think that that's really important because sometimes like just by the nature of being external to a situation, like our own perspective on, on it and our understanding of it is going to be different from that of someone who's in the middle of it. And like trying to force the person to see things the way you do, even though you're objectively right about it and I'm talking about you righteous man Dean Winchester like it just might not be super helpful
1: no and I agree and I think funny enough as much as I kind of made jokes about it in the long game segment looking back on the idea of looking at someone from an external point of view we talk about how the town views Bobby externally not understanding what he's had to go through like the more realistic view of He's the town drunk, but really he's been drinking to cope with the loss of his wife, dealing with demons, uh, the just the day to day shit he puts up with that they don't know about. Like, we excuse that level of drinking in him, especially we don't see it on screen that often, like it's implied that he drinks, like that's all he keeps in the house is beer. Like, have you ever seen the man hold a glass of water that wasn't holy water?
0: <laughs> no, it's usually not water. It's usually scotch. Holy scotch. <laughs>
1: Holy Scotch! Can you? I guess you can make holy scotch. Yeah, it's mostly water. Um, again, again, other other drink and food beverage tangents aside, <laughs> it's it, you know what it makes a really nice parallel to this episode when you think about that.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree with you. Um, I have three moments that I wanted to briefly explore with you. Um, the first is at the really very beginning when the brothers like they can clearly see that Bobby has like altered his appearance, you know? Um, And I was kind of wondering if you thought that that was denial on their part, like to leave the house without asking more questions or if it was just maybe like wishful thinking or if it was like giving him the benefit of the doubt. Like I wasn't too sure how to read that moment.
1: I read it from the perspective of like their men. Do they really notice when someone's made a change like that, that often, it feels almost like the cartoonishly joke answer to give.
0: I mean, they clearly notice that something's going on.
1: I think of the three kind of like denial, wishful thinking or like not noticing legitimately or like benefit of the doubt. I guess benefit of the doubt is the best one to use. Thinking like he probably has a reason to be dressed up like this. We don't need to bring it up. We don't need to push it. Like it still feels like it's really weird. They don't bring it up. It's almost like comedically to me.
0: They do bring it up, but he's like reassuring them that no, nothing's, nothing's wrong. Like I, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Like he repeats it so often to try to like convince himself, right? Like that's the whole point of denial. So, I mean, he's, and we'll talk about that later, but like he is clearly in denial, but I was just kind of wondering how you saw that for the boys. For the second one, at the very end, like when Dean says that he doesn't know squat from Shinola about love, I think that's denial. Because he knows more about love than that.
1: External denial, it's like lying to yourself to lie to somebody else more. What is Shinola?
0: So the real expression is shit from Shinola, or like he doesn't know shit from Shinola. And it's from the 40s. And it's just to say that he doesn't know anything about anything. I, look, I had to look it up because I was like, I don't know what that means. The third one is when Sam keeps asking Bobby if he's going to be okay at the very end of the episode. And it really goes from like, uh, Bobby, are you going to be okay? All the way to like, but you're going to be okay, right, Bobby? And it just, it like has like such a childlike quality to it. Like he's asking as a form of denial, almost like he knows that he's not okay,
1: this feels like the denial in the steps of grief of uh, like you know eventual acceptance is like the i know you're not okay i know this is like traumatic beyond anything i could imagine putting you through like even if you are going to come out the other side being okay it's going to take you like a while to cope with all this and get through it and find yourself again i'm just asking because i need to hear you comfort me because i'm the one like who needs some level of comfort now to know that I can walk away from you and you're going to be okay.
0: Well, that's like, if you want to stay with the, with the, the steps of grief, like that's a step into bargaining.
1: Which is why I think it fits so well in there. Yeah.
0: Are we ready to talk about Bobby?
1: Okay. I'll be honest. I was writing my notes and I was like, I can't think of a character who needs more of a break than Bobby. And then I'm like, Oh, right. Dean did go to hell for (laughs) years like Dean got brought back, you know, Dean is being told he's like a holy figure and needs to be like raised on a pedestal. Yes. Ultimately to be used by Michael. and He doesn't want to do that, but like he must be protected by the angels and he's a chosen one. Like I don't think it balances out the whole, you know, evil thing and like being in hell for and being tortured. But like, there's something about Bobby that just like, I need him to get a break. Like I really, uh, The denial in this episode is so strong in him, but it really feels like he deserved this small bit of happiness. It's like, again, to go back to like the bargaining almost of this, of like, I'm going to be in denial for now until I can't be anymore because I need this. I deserve this. And that is so heartbreaking to me, the idea that he's in denial but kind of knows he's in denial, like admitting to himself he knows he's lying. And I will be so, so beyond honest. In this episode, there is a moment that legitimately had me clutching the side of my chair. Like, in anticipation. And it's when Dean is sneaking in to go kill Karen. And the gunshot goes off. I was waiting for the second shot.
0: I honestly remember the first time that I watched it. And I heard the shot. And I wondered...
1: Like for for like the the way they shot it too, the way they had Dean like rush in to go see what happened. Like I really expected this to be Bobby's out for the series, and the fact that he didn't, the fact that he was able to like, y- yes, he is beyond hurt from this. Like you see it clearly, but the fact that he was able to physically do what he had to, what he did, and keep going when we know he's already been that close to taking his own life before is just like. Like, I know you can't spoil me, but like, tell me he gets some kind of happiness soon. Something, anything. Tell me he gets a dog. Tell me like a Girl Scout comes by and gives him a free box of fucking cookies.
0: You do remember that like the demons killed his dog at the beginning of like at the end of season three, right? Or season two, I can't remember. Season one, anyway, somewhere around there.
1: He can get a puppy. He's in a wheelchair service dog. It's okay. Just move on. It's fine.
0: I think that like, you know, I agree with you. Like the way that that scene is done, like the way that Dean reacts to it. Cause like Dean has already seen like his father, like the death of his mother resulting in the death of his father. And so like, he's kind of unsure what's going to happen with Bobby in this particular moment because like in his experience, it doesn't usually end up well.
1: You know, I didn't even think of making that comparison, like seeing how Bobby is so clearly filled in that father role for them and how John's bad dad was very much made worse dad, but or really became bad dad due to the loss of Mary that having, you know, to confront even some facsimile of this in, Bobby and Karen, oh, yeah, understand why Dean was as freaked out as we as a viewer were.
0: You know, you've talked about it really well, but like he, Bobby really embodies denial in this episode. Like he's lying to Sam and Dean. He's telling them that everything is okay. Nothing's wrong. Uh, He's also lying to himself by telling himself that everything's okay. Everything's fine. And like, he's got this. He's pretending that he, well, not pretending, but like he's trying to convince himself that like he's, thoroughly investigated the whole situation and like he knows everything's fine. And I think that that really touches upon like a really defining feature of denial or at least like the state of being in denial, which is telling yourself that you are in complete control of the situation. It's like, you know, like I got this, I got this, I got this until like the very point where like you very suddenly realize and some sometimes like violently recognize that you just really don't got this. And I also want to talk about, like, when Bobby pulls his gun on the boys. Because I did not like that. Bobby fucked up here in my eyes. Because this has really strong John vibes. And you see it in Dean's face and the way that, like, he's looking at him. He's looking at him the way that he used to look at John in season one. So, yeah, anyway, it just sort of brings me to reflect on how denial brings us to do things that we would never usually do. And you've mentioned it already, but like I'm thinking particularly of season four, Sam as like a perfect example for that. And that's when like having empathy for the person in denial becomes like really, really important to like preserve or even rebuild a relationship that's been threatened or hurt by denial.
1: Bobby did really seriously pull a out. No move here.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: And like, again, I think just the anger in not being given a chance, like, again, like you said, like, you think you're in control, you think you're so right. Literally, the opposition here is saying like, no, you need to kill your wife who you've been mourning for years, who you feel responsible for, because you killed her in the first place. As much as I don't agree with the action, and I think like shouldn't have happened. I don't want to say I understand it, but like,
0: But you empathize.
1: Uh, yeah, fully like pulling a gun. No, the level of anger. Yes.
0: This is the perfect example of how fiction can be useful and like teaching us to to decide on like what, how we feel about a situation like this one. Because if, if, if the person who was acting, if Bobby was somebody that we did not like, it would be really easy to completely like dist- cancel him over this, right?
1: Yeah, like just to tear him to shreds for being wrong and like not listening to the boys. But because we formed a bond with him and we understand what this is like for him. It makes it so much easier to empathize and see it from his point of view. And I'm going to say it, minus the pulling the gun. I kind of agree with everything he did.
0: There you go. And I think that that's also something to keep in mind because I did make the John comparison. So I know that that's going to come back in conversation to me. And and I wanna clarify that, like what makes the difference between John and Bobby is the usual behavior that they you that they had exhibited with the boys. Because like Sam and Dean know that this is not how Bobby usually acts. Whereas, like, we wouldn't be surprised to find out that John did something similar where he pulled a gun and told them to leave. You know, we'd be like, oh yeah, that's that tracks.
1: Why do I feel like it has happened?
0: <laughs> right? I'm like, I'm sure that that's happened before. <laughs> like, what is that?
1: Get in the comments. Tell us about it.
0: <laughs> I feel like that's also really important to kind of remember that the bond that you have with that person, like, yes, of course, Bobby has damaged that bond by doing that, but maybe extending a little bit of grace and being like, oh, okay. and of course, nobody has to do that, right? Like, but it just begs the question as to whether or not we want to do it. Do you have any thoughts about Jody?
1: Yeah, so hi, Jody. Welcome to the show. I've heard great things about you, and this episode was one hell of an introduction. I mean, very supernatural of uh, them to, you know, introduce a character, make him do something terribly traumatic and uh, face the supernatural in a way that really ruins them. So yeah, like clearly there's in denial about the whole existence of the supernatural. I mean, she literally confronts a dead man walking out of a house and just straight up arrests him
0: She's such a badass.
1: Like Such a badass. And I feel like it's a level of denial that's like almost written kind of jokingly.
0: I love her so much.
1: Very excited to hear we're getting more of her and a little bummed that it'll take us a while before we get her like more regularly. But I feel like her denial here is not the kind of denial where it's like, like, I refuse to believe the supernatural exists. Her denial is more in that, like, she needs everything to be logical and factual. So like in denial that that, that it could be a dead guy and then eventually obviously she must come to terms with it when her own son shows up. So no longer is it denial about them being back from the dead. It's, you know, denial that anything's wrong and this is totally fine. There's probably a logical explanation for it. So it's almost like less that she's in denial because she has full control over it. She's in denial because she believes it's a logical and right answer.
0: Well, she wants to believe, right? I'm sure that deep down somewhere she knows that this... There's something, something a little
1: amiss there. Your son returning from death is usually a pretty good indication that something's amiss. But I think it comes down to less of a like, whereas Bobby's like, I know this is supernatural. I know what this is. And like, there's a very good chance this will turn bad, but let me enjoy it for now. I'm in denial. This is very much the like, almost flip of that, which is the, okay, he's back. I'm happy. This is a good thing. Why is he back? I don't understand. I don't know. But there must be a perfectly logical explanation about it because I'm a reasonable person and we will figure that out. But it doesn't matter right now. I'm in denial that there's anything spooky happening. I'm just facts are facts. Logic is logic. He's here. He's happy. He's alive. I'm good.
0: But like Jody really begins the episode with denial because when she walks into the diner, she's on the phone with her son.
1: Oh my God, she is.
0: And we don't think anything about it. When it happens, because we don't know that her son is dead at the time, but like watching it for like the second, third or like 60th time, it hurts.
1: Ah, she knew this whole time the dead were back and walking among us and it was totally fine. And she, ah, totally new angle on this. I love her even more now.
0: (laughs) Her denial also makes her do things that like she would not have done before. Like, you know, Bobby says that she hated him until five days ago when the dead started rising. She's also telling Sam and Dean that like the fact that Clay has risen from the dead doesn't give them the right to shoot him. All of that is happening. Nobody, I, I'm not denying it. Nothing can get her to get out of this state of denial. And I think that this is really like the second defining feature of denial, which is the enormity of the thing that makes you realize that you were in denial. And for Jody. It's quite literally watching her undead son eat the insides of her husband. Like, that is the epitome of horrifying.
1: Yeah, imagine that being your first introduction to the supernatural. Woof! Shall we head to critical time? Let's.
0: So this episode was written by Jeremy Carver and directed by John F. Showalter. And this is his first one for Supernatural, and he is going to be directing episodes up until season eight.
1: Exciting. A new name is always fun, Uh, you know, kind of do the the red thread of tracking a little bit of their uh, their work, but bloody good start. And again, I think from a writing perspective, like especially introducing a new character like Jody and making them so immediately likable. It's clear to me that she was not just another cop in a town, like that she would be more integral to the story. Again, I don't think anything really said like she'll be back, per se. We didn't talk about it in story time because it didn't have anywhere to come up. But just the interaction of her with Bobby on the phone. Oh, my God. When they're yes. doing the fake FBI thing. She's it's just so like good. you could see Sam and Dean like,
0: yeah, exactly. we have
1: no idea how to respond to this. <laughs> what like, do we do? Used-
0: this is the sister we never knew we needed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's like really like, like you have a contingency plan for everything except for the foolproof stuff. And this was one of those moments of like we never discuss what to do if this goes wrong this can't go wrong what? how
0: <laughs> i love jodie honestly like this it she brings me joy so much joy i love whenever it's a jodie episode like i'm always going to be in a really good mood
1: <laughs> like now that we have her there's like an image of her in my mind she's like very not flushed out but like i have an idea of what she is or who she is i really can't wait to get a little more into her character and see her get more involved in the, in the cases
0: Do we have an interesting entry in the Hunter's Journal?
1: No, you'll be the judge of that. Waking up today took much longer than I remembered waking up could take. All my joints were sore and stiff, but once I was up and out in the light of the beautiful new day, I felt much better. Lighter even. I strolled up the street and thought I'd pay my son a visit. I hadn't seen him in a while. (laughs) Rang the doorbell and heard the dog barking. A voice yelled about being just a minute while I could hear the dog being moved away from the door. And my son answered the door and he was a surprise to see me. You know, it took him a moment, but he gave me a big hug and invited me in. I hadn't seen the new place yet, so it was kind of exciting. Tons of old family photos up on the mantle and some family heirlooms displayed with care. It felt nice. I commented on my old rifle above the fireplace, and we went back and forth swapping old hunting stories about the creatures we stopped and you know, the other hunters we met in our travels. I got emotional, but I just couldn't bring myself to cry. It was always that way. My son, however, got all emotionaled up, and when I said it was time to go, he begged me to stay a bit longer, but I knew deep down it was time. He waved goodbye and stood by the door, watching me walk away. It felt like a much shorter stroll back to the graveyard this time. Walked into my open grave. I felt bad if a river would be stuck having to bury me in the morning, but it's a small price to pay to see my boy all grown up and still making his papa proud.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> never knew that zombies could be so endearing.
1: Well, that's what this episode did. It, it it made these characters it gave them a second chance. And like, especially with Karen, when like you could tell she knew this wasn't for the long run. This was like, she like when she's there, she's like, "I don't sleep anymore. I'm just baking pies." It, like she's literally like stress baking because she knows her time is limited and something's wrong. Like, but it's still like, even if you know the time is limited, you can do something nice with it. So you have some thoughts this week I need to hear about.
0: So I guess today I kind of want to write a bit of a love letter to Jeremy Carver. And it feels really weird doing that for someone else than like John Sheehan or bed Edland, <laughs> But here we are. So the title, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, is from a 1982 movie with the same title. Now full disclosure, I haven't seen that movie, so I'm going to have to read to you the Wikipedia description. The movie is described both as a parody of and an homage to film noir and the pulp detective films of the 1940s. It's also described as like a collage movie, meaning that it includes clips from a bunch of different sources, and in this case, like, I think it's 19 movies from the 40s. So no that about the title of this episode I sort of want to turn our attention to the way that the zombie trope is used in this episode. As you know I'm not someone who enjoys horror uh, but I have watched a ridiculous amount of zombie movies in my day and you can tell in this episode that they're borrowing lore and representations from like those Romero movies and video games and from more modern zombie movies. So I just want to say like how much I enjoyed this episode. That is both a parody and an homage to zombies and zombie media history.
1: I love this. I think that's super adorable. And like, it it, you know, it's true because it really does kind of like play. It's one of those great moments of like taking a trope and flipping it. Like they really have like, oh no, the dead are back and oh, they're just kind of being normal and everyone's kind of just cool with it. And even at the end when we get the more traditional zombie and I say traditional because I, you know, it's which is weird because I think of traditional Romero zombies as being slow shambling husks and not what we see here, which is more of the 28 days later. I love that's the example of running zombie. Everyone uses But
0: because it was a shift. It was a shift in the lore and the way that sorry, I get really passionate about this, but like it was truly a shift in the way that zombies and there was a huge discussion at the time about whether or not zombies should be slow or fast because like, the whole point of the Romero movies and the zombie trope at the time was specifically that they were slow and that it was the creeping the fact that they're that they were moving very, very slowly and creeping up towards you and you can't do anything about it is basically to represent how, like the the deterioration of American society and and quote unquote, traditional values. and that there was nothing that people could do against that that change. So the fact that zombies were running in Twenty Eight Days Later was like a big shift in like how people thought of zombies.
1: No, I agree, and I think we could definitely do a zombie sewed. I think at some point, I think that is a mini sew we're putting on the books officially because I have a lot of thoughts about why why that shift happened or like what caused that shift and why zombies changed as a metaphor in what ways, and I think it's very interesting. Uh, But I want to offer a counterpoint to your thoughts. Uh, At the top of the episode, I made a big spiel about how I thought I knew where the title came from, uh, not knowing that it was directly a title of a film, which I think kind of gives yours a little more credence. And mine just seems really silly, but I have to share it. There is a book series that I read as a child called The Bailey School Kids, and the entire initial run of the series were all titled Insert creature here doesn't do insert action here. So to read a few examples, because I love these, are Bigfoot doesn't square dance. Hercules doesn't pull teeth. uh, Giants don't go snowboarding. Uh, My favorite one, my favorite one, I have to say, though, is ninjas don't bake pumpkin pie. And also Dracula doesn't do rock and roll, which I would argue in that one personally. There's uh, 50 of these titles. They are all equally as ridiculous and hilarious. Uh, They include everything from gremlins don't chew bubblegum to skeletons don't play tubas. And like the entire idea was here is a thing that is perceived to be a creature. Like the entire point of the book was like, Oh, we think this person's a Dracula. And then they never really like the whole point of the book, they never reveal whether or not it is. It's just the kid's perception of this otherwise innocuous person doing this otherwise innocuous thing. But like, They point out little things that make them as kids believe that it might be this thing. So I kind of saw it as like, oh, like at the beginning, we don't really know if they are zombies. So it kind of fit that trope a little bit, which is like weird that it works for both of them.
0: I was like, yeah, I mean, sure. I I really like that because it does seem like some kind of Mad Libs game, right? Like, you know, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is kind of funny.
1: And also any excuse to read titles such as, uh, I'm sorry, Elves Don't Wear Hard Hats. I love that. And the only one that I have a real problem with, which is uh wizards don't need uh graduation robes. And I'm like, wizards still graduate like from wizarding school. What is this bullshit?
0: So they would need special robes to graduate? They wouldn't just wear their regular
1: robes? Yeah, I guess, but like they still have to wear a robe during graduation, whether it be their wizarding robes or their graduation robes. Like, do they like full-on go like formal tuxedos for graduation wizards?
0: Maybe that to them is the most uh different thing. I don't know.
1: Okay, now we need a wizard lore episode.
0: (laughs) Let's have a listen to what the community has to say.
1: Let's go do that. This week, we have a message from Julia. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three minute voicemail to respond to anything we discussed today. You can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, why is it so hard for the brothers to wrap their heads around the fact that Clay died and came back to life when they've both died and come back? For our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk.
2: Okay, this is, I think, take 20 of me trying to record this voice message. Um, <laughs> I want to start this by saying that I love your podcast. It is literally the only podcast that I am able to listen to without getting completely sidetracked and or bored by it. Honestly, I like your podcast a lot and I listen to it very, very gladly while I'm actually rewatching Supernatural. So it's always an episode of Supernatural and then an episode of your podcast. So it's really fun. Um... Uh, this voicemail is about season one, episode 18, The Striga, which I remember that on the podcast you had a trauma expert on set, on record, uh, on record uh, with you. But I just wanted to say that while I do agree that John suffers from intergenerational trauma, and that is definitely a part of why he treats his kids the way he does, I do still think he loves them. But we know that in this fandom that nobody likes John, and I wanted to say this because you did not touch on it, and obviously I did not expect you to. Um, uh, everyone sees this differently, and I did not come up with this myself. I'm gonna give credit where credit is due, and I am going to read um something that a TikTok user has wrote down, which I full heartedly agree with. So it. The, the things that I'm going to say are written down by J- TikTok user JSTL. If someone wants to check them out, they're amazing Um, and really funny. And uh, they are part of the John Winchester Hate Club, which I'm definitely also part of. And I'm just going to say this now. Um, This is going to get kind of dark. We remember from episode 118, from season 118, that... um. Dean has a lot of trouble with the Shriga and that he is remembering stuff from his childhood. And we also know that he used the kid, um, I don't remember his name, sadly, um, as bait. And because helping his younger brother, whatever. And I think, and I think this user thinks so too, that that was kind of a mirror to what actually happened back then. And I'm going to read this out now. The Shriga that John uses his kids as bait for. John always left his kids in motels in different cities than the hunt he was on. That's why he was gone extended periods of time instead of coming home each night and also why he would need to call to check in instead of stopping by because he was too far away most of the times. It was his way of keeping his kids safe by making sure they were decent distance away from the monster he was actually hunting. However in this episode we find out that not only did he put the boys in a motel in the center of the same city as the monster he's hunting and directly in its hunting area. He also knew the monster was going after young children. Even though the motel was in the same city as the monster, he still didn't come home for almost a week. They say that this hunt was about 16 or 17 years ago, making Dean around 9 or 10 while taking care of Sammy all alone for a week. The boys had run out of money and food, as referenced by them sharing a single can of SpaghettiOs and the last bowl of cereal, and John still wasn't due home for a few more days. Miraculously, even though he wasn't due home yet, he just happens to burst through the door, right as the Striga is attacking Sam. He shoots it, but the monster gets away, and John blames Dean. I remember that on the podcast you said that he doesn't really... Blame Dean, it was more of a fear response of a father, and a worry response, I do agree with that, but the rest still stands. And if you put it all together, it just means John put his put the boys in a motel in the center of the Striga's hunting zone, fully knowing it goes after unattended kids. He was in the same city, yet didn't come come home or check in with them throughout the week that we know of. He happened to come bursting to the door right as Sam is being attacked, fully armed, and ready for a fight. But neither Sam nor Dean had screamed or fired a gun to indicate any sign of trouble. So how did John know the monster was there and ready to shoot? Unless he had been watching and waiting for that exact, mo- exact moment so he could strike. So not only did he use his kids as bait, he also watched them struggle hungry for at least a day or two. And... I know that this is definitely up for imagination. Like nobody nobody has to agree with this. I just think that this is a very nuanced take on this because, well, as everyone knows, we don't really like John. And I do fully think that this is something he would do. Not because he doesn't love his kids. We all, I think, know that John loves his kids. He is just very unperfect at parenting. <laughs> so, yeah, I would, I would leave it at this. <laughs> Um, I hope you continue with your podcast until season 15 so that I will actually finally finish the show because I never did. I always stop before season 15. I can't do it to myself, but I will at some point. Um, I'm going to have fun listening to the rest of your podcasts. Um, I hope you won't stop in the middle.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> Just very, very wow. <laughs> Julia, thank you. That was a lovely voicemail. (laughs) I was like really worried. I think whenever there's a John theory coming up, I'm always like, ooh, where is this going to go? How are we going to like, is this going to make me like John or make me feel like, ooh, like John deserves a little credit where credit's due? Or is he like and like even partway through this theory, I was like. Okay, yeah, you know what, I kind of see what you mean that he like always puts them first and here he had to use them as bait. So like, but he was like, right there ready to watch them. He knew what he was doing. But then yeah, he also just let them like nearly starve like, like you could like, like, I'm sorry, like I consider making excuses, but like bullshit that is just like, still part of the, the hate John Winchester club. And I'm glad you are too. And thanks for being a part of it. But also just thanks for getting all of the show with us. And I really, my wife does that too in a lot of shows. She watches and then listens to a podcast and does like one episode a week with the show. Not this show. She can't do it. I've tried <laughs> to get her to. One day I'll convince her. But I think that's such a cute habit to have. And I've been trying to find a show. I mean, I do it with this show, obviously, but I, I've been trying to find a show to do that with for a while.
0: Yeah, Julia, honestly, thank you so, so much for, for this voicemail. It, honestly, what it makes me think about Because now I'm thinking back to it and I'm like, it's very true. We never talked once about the fact that he does love his children. And I'm kind of flabbergasted at the fact that like Carol let that slide because they're usually the one to be like, yes, but (laughs) like, you know, always like.
1: They are really good at that. Yes.
0: So, yeah. So thank you for pointing that out, honestly. And I think that for me, like this is kind of one of the reasons why I am part of the John Winchester hate club, a card carrying member is in part because I have had my own experiences of having to, of really having to excuse and empathize with parents' behaviors that really should not have happened. Like, oh, but, and and I've had so many people tell me, oh, but like, think about what this person went through in their life and try to empathize with them. And this was said to me like as a teen. Um, And now I look back on this and I'm like, behavior, the behavior to begin with was inappropriate. And it was even more inappropriate for other adults around to say, you should empathize with this person. So I think that I have a lot of trouble. Like it's a visceral reaction when, when I'm being asked to empathize with John Winchester, because like I project too much of my own experience onto him. And so I'm like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to, because I have done this exercise too much in my life. I have given away too much of myself to this exercise, and I I just refuse to do it. And again, like I think that that's the beauty of fiction, that it allows us to practice those boundaries for ourselves. And so that's why I have a lot of trouble having those conversations about John. But if I were to, to engage with that conversation for a second, I would want to explore the ways in which being loved imperfectly being lo- loved badly can be incredibly painful and i think that that's what's happening right because i don't i i don't want to take away from the feelings of love that john might or might not have towards his children i think that he thinks he loves them very very much but i think that the way he shows this love is Completely inappropriate. Uh, Letting your children starve because you're trying to use them as baits to kill something that could potentially harm them is is just ass-backwards for me. John is incredibly complex in that way because if you're actually thinking about him very seriously, you are asked to empathize with somebody that I personally have a lot of trouble empathizing with. So thank you for for sending us this voicemail and for uh, reminding us, I guess that he did love his children because we, we didn't talk about that.
1: (laughs) No, Thank you very much. Uh, I'm really glad we got this conversation. I'm glad we went back to it. I love when we get to like get a voicemail that really like digs back into an old conversation. Like it really, I'll be honest. I forgot Carol was on that episode. (laughs) I'm like, Oh, the Striga episode. (laughs) Like it's a great episode. I love the Striga as a creature. And like, I can think of bits and pieces of it. And you're like, oh, you guys talked about this. And I'm like, we did.
0: <laughs> I know. Imagine like a couple of years from now and people are going to be like, oh, yes. In this episode, you said this. And we're going to be like, I
1: don't remember that. <laughs> I'll be sitting here with my gray beard, waving my cane at the screen. being like, hey,
0: you don't understand. Get off my lawn.
1: <laughs> Get off my digital lawn. <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you have any reflection and call to action for us this week?
1: I sure do. This is a tough one for me. Uh, I'm going to go as lighthearted as I can because that's how I deal with things, uh, as you know. And my motivation, my reflection this week is Bobby and specifically his strength. I think we talk a lot about this week and Bobby's denial and his like lying and his actions and some of the mistakes he makes. But there is a moment and you know, we see it in Dean. I saw it in me and we discussed it together where it really seemed like this might be where Bobby would take his own life, which he's already discussed doing. Um, and I don't want to make any comparisons to that with myself, but like I am someone who is diagnosed with depression and I have had very bad days before, never that level of bad, but I've had bad days and it just helps to remember that like someone who can go through so much can still find what to fight for. So even when I'm having those bad days, I'm having a day where I just physically can't, you know, get off the couch to go do something productive. And I just sit there doom scrolling for hours and just like wanting the day to be over and not like having any real like strength in me that I can push through. I can make it to the next day and then I could find something. So, while Bobby suffered a lot this week, and there is so much empathy for Bobby, there's also a lot of thanks for his character and his strength.
0: Yeah, honestly, this this what you're talking about really reminds me of Abandon All Hope, where Bobby is the one to kind of keep Dean on track, you know, like just looking at the next right thing. And I think here... I think here he has to keep himself on track and remind himself of doing the next right thing.
1: I agree. And your thoughts this week, your reflections?
0: Honestly, this episode makes me want to be better at noticing when I'm in denial. Uh, Because sometimes it can really be benign, like, you know, and mundane, but sometimes it can also really damage relationships, kind of like what we saw today. And so I feel called to be more in tune with myself and to try to make it so that, like, the thing that makes me realize that I'm in denial is not as enormous as it once would have been.
1: And I think it's very important and very wise. Uh, I definitely know I've had moments where I look back on and go like, Oh yeah, I was fully in denial and like it had repercussions and I don't think it's the kind of thing I would have noticed in the moment and only reflection let me do that. So
0: well, that's kind of the thing right with, with denial is that you only see it in hindsight And um, by reflecting on that, you are then able to identify a little bit more what happened, how it happened, how you felt. And then the more you do that, the better you become at handling those situations. And that is basically what we call experience.
1: (laughs) You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano hosted by Mary Viguhu and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira L. and Jeremiah Thomas, for their generous support. This
0: week, we'd like to thank Julia for their message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Hive, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. Please do!
1: And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios, or go directly to CarryingWayward.com.
0: Carry on, our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. For now, are we ready for the po- for the podcast? Oh my God, Drew!
1: What well, are the- we are ready for the podcast? <laughs> yes, we're doing that now.